0: Hi, this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my podcast. Happy Martin Luther King Day weekend to you. Hope you are getting a chance to reflect, perhaps um, read some of his writings, watch some of his speeches um, as we uh, enter into this, certainly this very new uh, period in the history of our country. And now more than ever is a time for us to reflect on Dr. King. So today I want to reflect a little bit on doing justice as we um, reflect on these words and continue our sermon series called the good enough life. Uh, I'm going to read from chapter or Luke 18 verses 1 through 8. So here these words. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart he said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared god nor had respect for people in that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying grant me justice against my opponent for a while he refused but later he said to himself though i have no fear of god and no respect for anyone yet because this widow keeps bothering me i will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming and the lord said listen to what the unjust unjust judge says And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? May God's blessing be on the reading and living out of this word. So I know some of you who listen to this podcast do not Uh, live in Chicago. So this may not be as, um, you may not find this uh, illustration very helpful. But on Sunday, I'm going to ask people to imagine a CTA section uh, or station, that is. So a train station, when you enter in, what are things that are usually always there? And I would imagine some people will talk about turnstiles or the machines to buy cards or CTA workers maybe the TV monitors that tell you when the train will arrive. Some of the stations have uh, a Dunkin' Donuts in it or some other shop that's selling coffee or something to eat. Someone may also say uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, because for the last uh, more than three years, maybe even a little bit longer than that, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have been setting up, and this is not just Chicago, but this is around the world. And uh, train stations around the world, they will set up, for those who aren't familiar with it, they'll have a little stand with pamphlets or books in it. And they don't call out to you. They don't um, say anything, really. They just stand there with next to the stand. I think that's there's an unspoken invitation for you to come up and to take any of the brochures or books for free. And if you have any questions about why they're there or what does it mean to be a Jehovah's Witness, Um, They're always very pleasant, smiling. I think they probably give directions for those who want them. But they're there, and there have been for now, like I said, more than three years. There was one time, this happened probably several months ago, if not more than a year ago. I was curious about this effectiveness. Like, is this an effective way to do evangelism? So I came up to a woman and tried to be polite about it, and I said, in so many words, does this work? I mean, do you have people who become Jehovah's Witnesses? Do you have people who come and get engaged in one of your communities of faith? And the woman looked at me like it was one of those bizarre questions in the world. It was as if I was asking her, why are you doing this? And she looked at me and she simply said, it's what we do. And I was kind of flummoxed as to how I should respond to that. I interpreted her response to me as saying, it doesn't matter if it's, Effective, it matters that we are here, that we have certain beliefs, and we are willing to stand here. We're willing to show up and respond to what we believe. And I realized I was asking the the wrong question. I had wondered are you doing essentially, are you doing a good job? Does this work? I was buying into our culture's desire to always have what we do be effective and productive. And instead, I think she was saying to me, we are doing a good enough job, meaning we are being faithful to the God we believe in. Well, as I noted earlier, we are taking a look at this whole notion of what it means to live the good life and how culture defines that, and then what it means to live a good life as our faith defines it. And I think we will find, and it's the title of this sermon series, that a good enough life really is what we should be striving for. So again, what do we mean by that? And what does it mean to live a good enough life when it comes to our faith? Are we setting too low of a bar? Just showing up? I don't think so. I was There's a famous quote that's given by Woody Allen, but this week I read uh, an article that gave it some context. So there was an interview done with a man named Marshall Brickman, who was a co-writer of the movie Annie Hall, he co-wrote it along with Woody Allen. And in this interview, Marsha Brickman said this, I have learned one thing. As Woody says, showing up is 80% of life. Sometimes it's easier to hide home in bed. I've done both. So Allen's quote, in a sense Showing up is 80% of life has stuck, and I've heard many people say this over the years, but is just showing up really? Is that all it takes to live life? Is that all it takes to live a good life? Is it all it takes in order for us to live into our faith? I think there's something to be said for showing up, and that relates to a good enough life, and it relates to a good enough faith. Now, by a good enough faith, I don't mean making an annual trip to worship and maybe praying before meals and saying, ah, good enough. <laughs> I'm saying living a faith that by the world's standards, by culture's standards, may seem imperfect. If we do things incorrectly, if we say the wrong thing, and others may say, well, you're not doing it right. That's not a good way to live into your faith. But I'm here today to have us take another look at that. You know, we have a model in our scripture this morning. Or today in this passage from Luke. So one thing to sometimes forget that I know that some folks are not quite as familiar with the Bible. So you may know that Luke is one of what are known as the four Gospels, the four ways of conveying this good news about this man named Jesus and the effect and impact that he had on people's lives and on the world. And so in Luke, we read sometimes that Jesus tells stories or parables. And the parable that we read today, this story about this widow and this unjust judge, only shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes we read parables that show up in other Gospels, but this is a a Lukean exclusive, as it was, as it were. And so uh, it's important to really focus particularly on this widow. Now, we may have an image, a contemporary image of what widows are, but widows, especially in ancient times, in the times that this was written and told, were really people who had very little social standing. They would really lost everything. Not only had they lost essentially an income, they lost their way of living because their husbands have passed away. But unlike today, widows did not have a lawyer to draw up a will so that they would inherit whatever came from the husband. Instead, as laws stood at that time, if a man died, everything he owned went to, instead to his brother. So the widow got nothing. And so she was left with nothing. So she missed out on her husband and what he brought in. And she's missing out on what her husband might have had, uh, his, essentially his own accumulated wealth. So she had nothing. She had nothing. And yet, widows hold a place of honor in the early Christian church. And widows also, because they had nothing, they are brought up continually throughout the scriptures. We read some of the prophets, and by prophets we talk about, if you look through the Older Testament of the Bible, um, people like Isaiah or Jeremiah are constantly calling people to make sure that they are paying attention to the widows, because the widows have nothing. But widows, as I noted, had a place of honor in the early Christian church too. We can see places in the scriptures, including Luke, where widows actually are are honored and lifted up and held up as paragons of faith. And that's the case of today's passage too. This is no ordinary widow. This is not a widow who is just going to take what life has given her and step to the side and just live life in poverty. This is a woman who, as the text says, keeps coming. This is a widow when she goes before this unjust judge who keeps showing up and showing up and showing up. So that the unjust judge gets to a point where he says, I need this woman out of my life. I'm just going to give her what she wants. So this is not uh, an exemplar of a story about justice necessarily necessarily. But I think what Jesus is saying here in this passage is pay close attention to this woman and her faithfulness and her desire to keep coming. And not only in prayer life, but also in the way that she speaks up for herself too. There is something to be said, I believe Jesus is saying here, there's something to be said about being persistent and showing up in life, even if you don't do it perfectly. The widow, my guess is, Uh, Did not necessarily have in mind the best legal counsel, uh, probably didn't use the strategies that others would have used in front of a judge, but she just kept coming, as the text tells us. And the widow, I want to lift her up today for us in specifically two areas of our lives to think about how can we live a good enough faith life. And to lift up the whole notion of what it means to just show up and maybe do things imperfectly, but instead, but to keep um, being present and being visible and keep coming before God and before others. So, two areas of our faith lives that I want to highlight are our prayer lives and also when we are called. I believe we are all called in some way to work for justice. So, Jesus points out the prayer life at the very first. Verse of this text today, again, Jesus tells them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. Their need and their desire to stay connected to God and to be faithful in doing so. I, I hear quite often from folks that one of the things that intimidates them about prayer, and I have said this in other podcasts before, but there's a a sense, I think, that people believe that there are magic words to say, that there is a a way to do it, and that if they don't say the right words, that either God doesn't hear them or that God is displeased with them. And so that intimidates them to think, "I, I don't know how to pray. But I think what Jesus is saying here is just keep praying even when you don't feel it or even when you don't think like you feel you have the right words. One of my all-time favorite quotes, and I've shared this quote before too, but I, whenever I share it with people, people seem to really relate to it. This was written by a man named Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton was uh, one of, if not the greatest spiritual writers of the 20th century, a, a, a monk who wrote many books. One of his most famous is his own autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, but Thomas Merton wrote this prayer. So again, this is a, a man who spent his life really in, in constant prayer and writing and reflecting and in conversation with God. But Merton wrote this about his own prayer life and sometimes as a reflection of his own spiritual life too. So hear are these words from Thomas Merton. He wrote this. He said, and this is a prayer that he wrote, My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself and the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me. And you will never leave me to face my perils alone. I wish sometimes people would take this quote and make it almost like the Lord's Prayer, something that they've memorized and they say over and over and over again because everybody at some point in their life has to have had the feeling I have no idea where I'm going. I don't know myself, I think I'm following you and and Merton says here just the fact that I in a sense in a sense show up and say some things and have this at least spark of a desire to follow you, Merton says, that pleases you. And I think Jesus would say the exact same thing. The widow, I don't think probably, if she went before the judge, didn't have the the right things to say, but she keeps showing up. And in our prayer life, I believe we are called to do the same thing, to have a good enough prayer life, meaning to just show up, to say the words, to in connection. This pleases God. And I think this is what Jesus is saying here. I think the other thing we need to pay attention to in our faith lives is not just prayer, but also how we live out our prayer, particularly how we live this out and pay attention to the widows in our midst, the people who have nothing, the people who have been cast aside. Again, notice the hero, the protagonist of this parable is a widow, somebody who has nothing. Jesus does this all the time. So in our prayer lives, hopefully we need both a prayer, strong prayer life, and we also need a life where we are living out what comes out of that prayer life. And then if we go too far in one of the others, I think we're missing out on what it means to have a good enough faith life. So when I talk about doing justice, that can seem really intimidating too, because I think when people think about doing justice and they think, well, that's not really me, and that's, I can somewhat see that, but I think we are all called in some way to, to live out our prayer lives And to make sure that the widows of where we are in the world are being paid attention to. So we're coming alongside them and speaking up with them. So, what stops us from doing that? What stops us from becoming active? What stops us from doing justice? What stops us from following the call of the prophets? What stops us from standing beside the widows? Well, all of this takes courage, to be sure, because when we do this, often it leads to conflict, and most of us don't like conflict. That scares us, and, and we decide not to do it to avoid it. I, I get that. But I think also sometimes what stops us is the uh, phrase, we get involved or we get caught up in paralysis by analysis, meaning... Uh, one thing that we hear a lot is people saying, I, I don't know enough about the issue. I want to be more educated. And I totally understand that too. I sometimes feel the same way. But what happens is when we take actually, actually take the step to read more, then we get caught up in just reading and just wanting to learn a little bit more, read one more article or just get a little bit more information. And so we get involved only in a, battle or uh, living in a world of ideas only. There's nothing wrong with having ideas and uh, exercising our minds. But then if we're not actually living this out because we don't want to do it incorrectly, then that doesn't do the widows in our midst any good either. I think in prayer, When we think about doing justice, we think that there's got to be a perfect way to do it. And if we don't have that nailed down, then we don't do it. We have to, in other words, be quote-unquote good at doing justice. But again, I don't think when we look at the widow, my hunch is she didn't necessarily have the best court case. She just kept coming. So I'm reading a really wonderful book right now that, um, has been a national bestseller for a few years when it first came out called the warmth of other Suns." Um, the post colon, the subhead of this is the epic story of America's great migration written by Isabel, Isabel Wilkerson. And, uh, I, I'm about, about, I'm about a quarter of the way through it. And it's a powerful book. What she does is really take a close look at three individual lives and the book, uh, really focuses on the great migration which is the essentially the relocation of about uh, more than 6 million african americans from the rural south to the north midwest and west from the years 1916 to 1970 and wilkerson takes a look at three individuals and their stories And if you like historical fiction, this is a really wonderful book because it's not fiction. It's true. And yet she has a wonderful way of writing that makes it read like this is a novel, the the, the lives that these three individuals lead. So one of these individuals is a man named George Swanson Sterling. He grew up in Florida in the 1920s and 30s. So in the middle of Jim Crow laws, which uh, Jim Crow laws, of course, were uh, local and state laws that essentially conceivably tried to convey a message that things can be separate but equal, that people of color had to engage in different parts of a bus, different parts of a diner, different parts of a school, two separate schools. Uh, And the Supreme Court, of course, in 1896, too, ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that separate but equal is a just law. But as anyone who grew up in the South at this time knew that that was not the case. So George Sterling grew up in the middle of Jim Crow laws and had to work in the citrus fields for next to nothing. He wanted to be educated, uh, but he's also frustrated by what he was experiencing. And he got married because he, uh, out of uh, kind of a rash decision, but he and his wife were married and he felt like he had heard, or he heard rather that there were jobs to be had. So as he grew up and got into World War II, he heard that there were jobs to be had in Detroit that paid a lot better wages than what he was making in picking fruit, so he finally decided to leave his wife behind to go up and make money, so that she could so he could support his wife uh, and his family. Worked in Detroit for a while, got better wages, but then also discovered that there was no uh, racial um, perfect, no racial Eden, as it were, in, up north either. In Nineteen forty-three, there was a major riot that broke out between. Uh, white residents and black residents of Detroit, one of the largest race riots in our country's history. And that spurred his decision, among other things, to be back with his family to move back to Florida. So when he moved back to Florida and knew that he had to start working in the citrus fields again, something had changed within him. He, was now, he, had, he, he knew what it was like to work for better wages. He knew what it was like to not live in a city that had Jim Crow laws. He knew what it was like to not have to walk off of the sidewalk when a white person came by. He knew what it was like to not have to say, sir, whenever he was talking to a white person. And so when he went back to the citrus fields, he and two other individuals who also had worked in Detroit with him decided to do something different. Because of the war, there were not as many workers to pick the fruit, and they knew that. And so they decided, George and two of his friends, in a sense, to organize. And he got some of the other workers to convince them to said, to tell them that we are in a place of power here, and we will refuse to work until we get a better wage. And he convinced these other workers to join them in doing so. It took some convincing, but they finally agreed to do so. So I want to read an excerpt from this book. Now George is going to the foreman of this field, and he's engaging in some negotiation about this. So George approaches the foreman about how much they're going to make when they, in, how much they're going to make in picking the fruit. So here's again, this is from the book The Warmth of Other Suns. What you paying for this, George asked the foreman. Well, you know, this is good fruit, boy, the foreman said. Now. You can get well in here. These aren't as big as grapefruit. How much you paying? we paying good. That's 15 cents a box. That ain't good enough. Nope, we can't pick for that. We want 22 cents a box. Nah, we can't give you that. George thought it over. Okay, we'll do it for 22 cents. Straight through, good and bad. Nah, we can't. Well, we can't pick it then. We're 40 miles from town. I know. We're still not going to pick it. Well, y'all pick a load. I don't want to send the truck driver back empty. So y'all pick enough so he can take a load into the packing house. Then I'll send word to the boss and tell him what y'all want to do. Nope. We're not going to pick one. We can send the truck back to town and we'll wait. Got nothing to do. Y'all just doing this way because y'all got the advantage over us. This war ain't going to last forever and by God, y'all going to pay for this. We already paid, George said. All these years, we couldn't even ask how much you were paying for a box of fruit or we'd get fired. You gave us what you wanted to give us. you promised us one thing and give us another. You put the payday off whenever you get ready. Sometime you didn't pay us period to so now, far as I'm concerned, this is reckoning day, and I ain't worried about after the war. You can pay us what we want, or else your fruit going to hang there or going to hang out there and they want it in New York. they want that fruit all over the world. And you ain't got nobody to pick it. The foreman kneaded the fruit out of the trees. He left with the truck with, with the truck driver, and before long was back from the packing house. He told them to go to work. He would pay them 22 cents this time. The old men and women set their ladders in the trees and commenced picking, and by nightfall, they and these cocksure boys had made more in a day than they would have otherwise made in a week. And that's the end of the excerpt. Now, one of the things about this it seems like it's a great story, a great ending, but of course, as George keeps doing this and keeps organizing for fair wages at this time, of course, that literally threatened his life. There were lynchings all over the place, and he eventually moved from Florida back to New York, so it doesn't necessarily end with a quote-unquote, "happy ending." But on this day, what inspired me about this is that George has the courage to show up. He doesn't have a college degree. He didn't do any studying about collective bargaining or community organizing. He just knew what was right. And he had experienced. He had tasted justice. He had tasted better wages. And so he decides to sum up the courage and get others to join him, saying, no, not this time. Not this time. Friends, showing up can be a huge part of having a good enough faith. There's no one right answer to do these things. There's no one right answer to pray, no perfect formula. There's no perfect formula for doing justice. On Monday, a group of urban villagers are going to go, and we're going to this rally. The Community Renewal Society is putting on to inspire ourselves and to know this is a year where we're going to continue to work for justice. We may not know all the issues. We may not know the exact right way to write a letter or be in front of a legislator, but we know this, that we believe in a God who came to us as Christians in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who would tell stories that would have a widow and nobody at the center of the story as the hero. See, this is how you do it. You keep coming and coming and coming. And that, friends, is good. And that, friends, is enough. May we follow that widow's example in our own lives too. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening once again. Sorry, today's podcast is slightly longer than normal, but I have more, uh, more bang for your buck, as it were. So, um, as always, please feel free to reach out to me, chris at org, Or on uh, Twitter, I'm at Christian Kuhn. I'm always happy to engage with you in any ways. And until next week, uh, as we move and live into this Martin Luther King Day weekend, may the peace and justice of Christ be there for you and also for the widows in our world as well. Peace. Be thou my wisdom and thou my.